You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love More Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Good morning out there in off-the-shelf Books Talk Radio land. I'm going to start with this thought on this glorious Saturday morning. Knowing is not enough. We must apply. Willing is not enough. We must do. And that's from Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Knowing is not enough. We must apply. Willing is not enough. We must do. Welcome, welcome. And I, I always have to thank our loyal listeners, 16 years on the radio, Thank you, thank you for tuning in this morning to Off the Shelf. And if this is your first time listening to our show, you are listening to the Winning Book Radio Show, Off the Shelf. And I want to welcome you again to this Saturday, July the 18th. You guys, we are more than halfway through July 2020 already. It's hard to believe. With so, it's just so much going on in the world right now. There, honestly, there always has been. It just seems like sometimes there. Things are just so routine and repeating that we don't notice just how much is always going on. But we are we are like more than halfway through the year now. So hopefully you're going after your goals. And remember that quote, knowing is not enough, we must apply. Willing, and, willing is not enough, we must do. And something you might want to do this weekend is get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. It's in print and ebook. book ebook here's some of what you'll get if you get love for over me there is a murder mystery tucked into the story and it is it the the main character raymond he and his father have a very complicated relationship his father has untreated alcoholism but raymond has so much talent and women actually love him he's very caring he's smart he's athletic when he goes to college it is like his life pivots and 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 he happens upon something that when he meets his four friends who they're friends for a lifetime, these four, these five guys are friends. They're, they're, they're from different parts of the world and different parts of the country. One of them goes on to play in the NFL, and he has a very successful career. But they all are very, doing very well, and they just maintain this bond of friendship. But when Raymond first comes to college, he witnesses something that is a part of this mystery, and could one of his friends be involved? Could one of his friends be involved in his murder mystery? One of his lifelong friends. So you'd have to read Love Over Me to to figure that out. And then the 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 soulmate ro- romantic relationship between Raymond and Brenda, and they meet in college, is very moving. But I particularly appreciate the relationship as it evolves between Raymond and his father. And if you value relationships, you like romance, you like mystery, I encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. You can get it in print or ebook at Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's, it's available so many places. If you don't see it on the store in the store shelves, just ask the clerk to order your copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney, and they can order you a copy because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. So please go get a copy of Love for Me. I want to know how you enjoy this story. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. 
And our special off-the-shelf guest this morning is the one and only Casey Bell. And Casey has authored, I mean, a broad volume of books, beginning with five children's books, a horror novel, three nonfiction books, short stories, one art collection, and in total he has written 22 books. At, at this point, it might even be more than that. He has also worked as a playwright and as a fashion and graphic arts designer. And as if that's not enough, he also teaches seminars. And books that Casey has authored include American History, Book of Art, Points from the Other Side, To College or Not to College, Family Full of Strangers, You Are Beautiful, Buried Lies Surface, and The Wishing Bottle. I encourage you to visit Casey Bell online at ArthurCaseyBell.com. And that's spelled just the way it sounds, A-U-T-H-O-R-C-A-S-E-Y-B-E-L-L.com, ArthurCaseyBell.com, ArthurCaseyBell.com. And we are absolutely delighted to have Casey here with us on Off the Shelf this morning. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Casey. Hello. Thank you for having me. It is it is a pleasure. I know when I was researching for your uh, feature interview here on Off the Shelf this morning, I said, oh, my goodness, what a prolific, a prolific writer. Now, to, to kick off the show, I'm going to ask you the first four, about the first four questions I ask every guest who comes on, just so our listeners can get to know the authors before we launch into talking about their books. So to kick it off this morning, Casey, can you please tell off-the-shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? I grew up in Old Bridge, New Jersey. Um, um, I had, a, a, I guess you can say, a regular average lifestyle. Um, I have a older sister and an older brother. I'm the last. Um, we, I mean, we had a good life. We had friends. We played around, you know, in the parks with our friends. Um, I think the, the, the number one thing I remember the most about my life, which I'm sure has changed now in everyone's life with all the technology is every Saturday, um, my dad used to work. It's closed now because, you know, records and CDs are not really a thing anymore. But he used to work at a um, music store, and he would come home with whatever latest album or CD. Well, back then there were albums. There were no CDs yet. Whatever latest album there was. And Saturday we would watch, you know, Saturday morning cartoons, and then we would go out and play. And then... And Saturday evenings, we would listen to records. And I remember doing that for a very long time. And then things changed and that ended. But I do, I think that's one of my favorite memories is listening to those records. And that really played a part in my life because I am a huge lover of music. So, Wow, you know, going back, now I lived in... I lived in Trenton, New Jersey, for a little while, and I know where Newark is. What's close to, you said all, what was the name of the town in New Jersey? I know New Jersey has a lot of small towns, but the name of the town, is it close to Newark? No, Old Bridge, it's next to East Brunswick, not far from East Brunswick. Oh, that is, is because I've been in that area as well, and up near Princeton and going up from, I used to take Route 1 up, uh, 
you could take it all the way from like Princeton all the way up to Newark and then or get on a turnpike. Interesting, interesting. So as a kid, Casey, what did you want to be when you grew up? What did you say this is what I want to do when I grew up when you were a kid? It changed a lot. I think the first thing I remember saying is I wanted to be a singer. Um, oh, okay. Music. Yeah, then it Yes, music. Well, both my parents were in musical groups. Um, they actually met um, backstage at a concert, and then all their siblings sang and played instruments, and they all their friends were into music. So it's it's basically in the family. Um, then it changed. Um, um, seventh grade, I did a, a play in school, and I remember in eighth grade going to Rutgers University to see To Kill a Mark. To Kill a Mockingbird, and we were told that a lot of the actors are record students. And I remember sitting there watching, saying, this is what I'm going to do when I grow up. I'm going to go to records, I'm going to major in theater, and I'm going to be an actor. And then um, I actually went to Kane University instead and studied theater. And, you know, I realized I didn't know a lot about the um, Hollywood and Broadway world. And I just came into a, a lot of knowledge that kind of made me, um, how do I say, there are a lot of things you have to agree to when you sign contracts and become a union and things of that nature that I just told, I originally tried to lie to myself and say, oh, I, I can I can compromise, I'm okay, I'm good. And it got to the point where I said, you know what, I, I really can't compromise, I cannot do this. And so I gave that idea up of being an actor and I tried graphic design for a while. Um, I did stand-up comedy for a while. And I finally just stopped and had to pray and ask God, where do I go? And he reminded me that the very first thing I really started doing as a child was writing. And through all of that, you know, want to be a singer, want to be an actor, want to be a dancer, want to be this, want to be that. The one thing I never stopped doing was writing. Everything else was um, I started, stopped, started, stopped. But writing was the only thing I continued from I'm gonna say around six age six or seven years of age all the way up, I never stopped, and so that's when I looked back and went, oh right, and I was writing because I guess it was writing for me was like breathing. I did it not because I wanted to make money off of it. I did it because that's just what I did, and so I never really thought that I would be a writer because it wasn't something I was doing as something to be. It was just something I was just doing. So who or what inspired, who birthed your love for books? Did that come from school? Did somebody read to you when you were a kid? Where did that passion for writing come from? Well, the the first thing I actually wrote was a song, and I can't really say what what birthed it. I just remember sitting, my brother um, had godparents who gave him the latest video games, and he was playing this video game. I don't remember the name of it. And it was, this tune was repetitive. And out of nowhere, I just started singing. A, I made up a song on the spot to this tune. And that was my first time writing. And I, I guess it's just who I am because I can't really say what inspired me to do that because I just did it without even thinking about it. And anytime I write, it's never, it's just something I do because I feel like I need to do it. Um, it was also, writing also was my therapy. Um, when I was in school, definitely um, eighth grade, ninth grade, 
I was bullied a lot. So that was my outlet of uh, screaming and yelling and putting out my frustration. Um, And then I would say my first time getting the book bug of writing, wanting to write a book, my first book that I started writing, but it wasn't the first that I published, A Family of Strangers, I was writing, I was watching a Lifetime movie, and I just said, this would be better if this happened instead, and so I wrote the book. Uh, okay, you know, and that's interesting. I, I love to read when I was a kid, and sometimes you're like, there's not a, like what Toni Morrison said, if there's not a story out there that you want to read, then you, you, you write that story. But I wanted to go back, uh, thanks for what you sh- you shared, I wanted to go back to when you or taking theater when you were in college, you said there was something in the contract that you just couldn't compromise on. I'm just curious now. You know, I have a friend who, I have a friend who has a, a, a glorious voice and and a, and a niece. And my friend was going to go like into gospel. She said, but the music industry, as with, with the book industry as well. There's stuff about it that people on the outside would never even think was going on in these industries. You probably could pick any industry and say that about it. Um, but some industries where there was music or uh, theater or movies, there's, it's, it's almost like you have to you have to agree to do things that you really personally you're like, nah, I'm not going to a club and do that. I'm not going to. But you have to almost to get your career sometimes up off the ground. So I was just curious, what was it in the in the contract, if you can say, that you said, nah, you know, I can't do that? Um, well, it's actually, if I'm not mistaken, it's the same thing in um, when you sign a, um, a book deal, and it's also the same in the music industry, Hollywood and Broadway. It's called name ownership. And basically, once you sign a contract to be union, you're agreeing that that union owns your name that you're using, which means wow. there's nothing you can do with that name without their permission. It's one of the reasons that's why Prince called himself, um, you know, formally a known slave. as Prince yeah, because slave. once he signed that contract, let's say his church was having something and he they asked him to be a part of it, and then they made flyers with his name on it. He would have had to ask the union permission, and if they said no, he would not have been allowed to do that. Function oh my goodness. With, without their permission. That's also why P. Diddy changed his name so many times because whoever had his name, like when he did, um, when he switched, um, I believe, record labels, they wouldn't allow him to use his name, so he had to change his name. And then when he wanted to do a fashion clothing line, they wouldn't allow him to use P. Diddy, so he had to use Sean John. Oh, and my so goodness. And so that's how that works is without their permission, there's nothing you can do with your name. And then, of course, you can not put your name on the flyer, but then no one's going to know who you are because they know you by your oh your your name that they know. And I personally feel like there's only two people in the world that should have ownership of my name, and that's my mother who named me and my dad who gave me my last name and no one else. And so I have oh I had a God. problem with that. And I thought about, you know, using five different names, but I said to myself, I don't want to have to run around changing my name because – someone owns my name. And technically, if you think about it, that's the same as being a slave, someone owning you, because there's literally nothing you can do with your name without the permission. So you that know, was watched, 
Um, wow. That why, is, I, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I don't think I can go down that road either. I'm like, wait, hold on a minute. It puts me in mind of the movie I saw about the how McDonald's, the guy who, there were two brothers who really started it. And then another guy came in, and he actually owned their their personal surname. They couldn't use it in marketing or anything. That McDonald is actually a person's last name, and he he just he owned it. They couldn't even use it anymore to market their own small restaurant. He owned their name. They couldn't even use, it. and that's is similar to that. I had no idea though that um, book contracts. I haven't seen that in though, but um, I do know they can take ownership of your 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 book for seven, ten years or however long you agree, there's nothing else you can do with it because they own it until that contract expires. Uh, I just want to do a quick ad, and then I'm going to ask you some more questions about your books. Writers, if you're looking for editors, please check out BreakingRulesPublishing.com. Again, writers, if you are on the the search for editors, check out BreakingRulesPublishing.com. And now, Casey, I wanted to ask you, you shared a very good tip just then, and and I had a friend who used to work, uh, she and her mother had a law firm, and they were entertainment lawyers. Um, They say get your contracts looked over. We all have heard the horror stories of people who have sold millions of records, and they only get like, they make him like 40000 a year, and you can't even imagine how that could happen. But it, it still happens today. Because people get excited when they see a contract. Oh my God, I got a movie deal, I got a record deal, I got a book deal. Yeah, and it's horrible. You got a horrible deal. So have a have a um, an experienced entertainment attorney look it over before you sign it. I'm glad you brought that up. So now to your books, Casey. Could you please introduce us to the main characters in Barry Lies Surface? Yes. So without giving away too much, um, Matthew, um, I guess you can say, is one of the main characters, Um, had an experience um, as a child with his friend Bobby. And um, he decided to go to the police about it, and um, Bobby denied whatever so he wasn't able to they this they decided to drop the case um and what made Matthew upset was that in this they were uh middle school high school age what made Matthew upset at this time was his own parents didn't believe what he was saying so he asked his parents if he could live with his aunt and uncle in a state away and they agreed so he moves and he leaves because the whole town is angry with Matthew because they feel like he lied about, um, he alleged something about one of the town people and they're angry with him for lying and et cetera, et cetera, even though it was true. And because the town looked down on him, he didn't want to be in there anymore. So he moved out and then he, he basically, I guess you can say, forgets about it. And so the whole thing gets buried. That's why it's called Barry Lies, Surface, or Buried, et cetera, et cetera. About 10 years later, he gets a call from Bobby telling him, you know, he has something to tell him, can he come over? And Matthew is assuming that Bobby is finally coming clean about what he alleged. Unfortunately, 
that's not what Bobby calls him to let him know he's getting married and he wants him to come to the wedding. Um, to make a very yeah, so to make a very long story short, um, there were a few friends um, from school, Bobby Matthew and a few other friends, but they haven't seen each other um, after high school. They left, went to college, et cetera, so they haven't seen each other in a very long time. They all come back for this wedding, but instead Matthew is angry that that's why he's coming back, and so he's like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And one of the friends suggests that they all go away on vacation. So the bulk of the book is them in the Bahamas vacationing, discussing the past and trying half of the friends believe that Matthew was telling the truth and the other half believe he was lying. So they're trying to have this vacation, but they keep discussing the past and to make a very long story short, I won't say who, what, where, and why, how, but at the end we do find out that Matthew was telling the truth in a way that is not good. I'll just put it that way. Uh, so, so let me ask you this. Is, is he is Matthew whatever whatever happened with who in the middle school age it was it was it involved a a prominent person in the town what would cause everybody he's in middle school what would cause everybody to say want to tell lies about him to discredit him i'm I'm assuming he, this involves somebody with a lot of uh influence. It wasn't really someone who who was involved um, influence. It was the fact that when he mentioned Bobby was a witness, when Bobby denied it, that's what made them believe. Well, then he has to be lying because the person he alleged denied it, and the person the wit the person he said is a witness denied it, and it was Matthew the only one out of the three people who could have said it happened. Matthew was the only one saying that it did happen, so they had no other evidence. So it made them believe that he had to be lying. Oh, so he's in middle school, and so he says that sounds like a very interesting story. So he's and his parents were they? Yo, know, you said his parents didn't believe him either. Did they? They didn't believe him either, right? Right. They thought he was lying. Oh my goodness. Yes, only because Bobby, who could have helped him, denied it, and that's what made them not so sure. Now is this is this story based on real life events and if it's not based on real life events where did you get the idea for the story So this is a crazy story because it doesn't make sense but sometimes my books or plays come from things that don't make sense So I do drama but I am a comedian at heart So sometimes I could be sitting down minding my business and a thought would come to my head a one liner and immediately I'm like, oh, I got to use that for something. And so I saw these two males standing in my a vision in my head, and one of them said, oh, I'm getting married. And the response was, what, you mean today? And for me, that was a comedic line for a sitcom. So when I get ideas, the first thing I do is start asking questions, like who are these people, what's the message behind it, because I don't want to just write something. I want there to be a message. What's the message behind it? Where, Who are they? Where are they from? What's the story behind this one-liner? And as I began to ask questions, the story um, created itself, and then I sat down and wrote it. And so that's mm. basically – it's weird, but that's the how it got conceived. And when you read the book, you'll read that one-liner in there where Bobby says, I'm ah. getting married, and Matthew replies, what, you mean today? 
And so okay. that's how it happened, believe it or not. Now, how old is Bobby Sampson when he gets adopted? And, and and what is his family background like? How old is he when he gets adopted? That's actually a different story. Oh, it is. That's a different story. Okay, so this. Yes, Bobby this, Sampson, that's a different story. Okay. That's a different um, book. Did you when you when you were uh when you were writing the book, did you research to pull together information about the book? Uh uh so your stories and I think you just answered that question. Your stories just come to you like you said this one came to you like a comedic line and you literally right. just start writing writing a story just just from that, not knowing anything about the characters, I guess you develop them. Because the storyline for uh, Buried Lives Surface is very intriguing, and it seems like it just pops up in your yeah. head out of, any, out of nowhere. No wonder you are such a prolific writer. Can you tell us about or give us a, an overview, Casey, of The Wishing Bottle? Sure. Um, that's... Um, hmm. Without trying to sound, um, how do I say, um, offensive or trying to sound hateful, which I'm not, because um, I'm I'm just still, from my own personal experience, I realize that unfortunately, as human beings, we can't really have sympathy for someone unless we've been in their shoes. Even if what we know they've been through is horrible, we don't see the need to help or do anything when we're not when we're not the one going through it. So, the wishing bottle was written to put um, again without sounding prejudice um, in America, specifically white men in the shoes of everyone who's not a white man, and basically. The main character is not only racist, but he's a sexist, he's a bigot, he's everything. He believes everyone who's not a white man, you know, whatever. So these three, I don't know what they are, gods, beings, fictional, it's a fantasy book. The, the, um, they visit him to try to, kind of like uh, The Christmas Carol, they visit him to try to change him and say, you know, you need to be better, you need to help people get equality, you need to help people, et cetera, et cetera. And they try to convince him that he needs to do something to put it into unequal pay and um, discrimination in America, et cetera, et cetera. But he doesn't. He decides he doesn't want to do it. So the last god who comes and visits him tells him, "Because we gave you the opportunity to make a change and you didn't, you are now going to experience everything you chose not to help." So after that, he he gets into he wakes every time he wakes up he's in a different world so the first time he wakes up um he's being discriminated against because he's a man um the second time he wakes up he's being discriminated against because he's a white man the next time he wakes up so each time he wakes up it, the discrimination is on him and not women or not black people or not asians or whatever and the he the world turns around and he gets to step in the feet of those who've been discriminated against in america and the very last time they tell him, if you do not help, you're going to be stuck in this world and you won't get out of it. And so that oh. is a wish, the wishing bottle because it's literally 
um, he gets this bottle, and it's a wishing bottle, and this genie comes out, which is the second god he meets, um, and he tells him, you have to make a decision. Either you're going to help us put it into racism or you're going to help us put it into sexism. And because he decides neither, he then has to go through all of the discrimination that he never witnessed. And the purpose of that is for him to realize this is what you've never got a chance to witness. And now that you're witnessing it, now, you know, there's more of a chance that he'll actually put it into it because, unfortunately, we just don't want to – you know, if we see someone hurting, but we're that's not us, we're like, oh, well, that's not me. I don't have to worry about that, and we don't do anything. But when we have that pain, now all of a sudden, I remember when um a while ago, back in 2014, 2015, um, you know, this white man, he, he his son got shot and killed. And then, I mean, I haven't heard from him since, but he went on the rage and started um, protesting um, gun laws, et cetera, et cetera. But prior to his son getting killed, he didn't care. And so unfortunately, we it has to hit home for us before we care. And so the purpose of the book is to show the, you know, the, that one group in America, white men, what it's like to be discriminated against so that they can do something before the shoe gets on their foot. Uh, and so that's the story that's behind the wishing bottle. Very, very interesting. I love your storylines, and that is—it's you know what—and it's so true. We often, I think it. I don't, sometimes I think it's selfishness. It's like I only care when something happens to someone who looks like me, or, right. or yeah, or I, I something happens to someone who's gone through what. I, either way, it points back to us. It's like I really only care about what happens to me. It really, if you got it down to the final thing, and then maybe like that story is, you know, we're all connected, so you're going to have to come out of that. How did he find the bottle? Where did he come, where did he, where did this, it's a fantasy book, but how did this bottle show up? Um, they, the gods come to him because they're aware of who he is and what he's doing. So he doesn't, he doesn't actually get a choice in it. The first God comes to him and lets him know you need to stop, and he doesn't. The second God comes to him through his refrigerator. He opens up his refrigerator and he sees it, and he's not sure where it came from. And so, because he didn't heed to the first God, basically the first God sent him the second God. And when he didn't heed to the second God, the second God sent him the third God. And it's the third God that sends him on this journey of him receiving the discrimination he never stopped, helped to stop. Interesting, interesting. Is he like Archie Bunker? What is what is, what is the main character? What is he like? Before these gods show up, how would you describe him? Is he like a corporate executive? Well, is he? well he actually um, works for a – I don't remember the name of it, but it's basically a male version of The View, um, and he was one of the hosts. And oh, the, interesting. Um, basically – he um how do i say it's not so much that he's racist or anything it's just that he doesn't believe that sexism and racism exists in america he doesn't he doesn't believe it he believes that everyone is just making it up and that um but even though he he is somewhat prejudiced because he'll see people like in the beginning after the um towards the beginning of the book he's walking down the street and you can um hear his thoughts of people and he's um, judging them 
And when he comes to the first God who looks ridiculous, he talked he he says something in his mind about this God and, and what she's wearing, and then she speaks to him and says, um, you know, I heard what you just said, and she repeats it, and he's like, what's going on? And that's his first <laughs> introduction to this first God. So, yeah. That is a book. You should you should really get the word out about your book because there are people who really don't believe, like, systemic racism. They're like, I don't believe that exists in America. And I don't know if it's that they really don't believe it or they don't they don't want it to be so. They don't want to they don't want to believe that it's so. A country is just made up of the people who are in it. It's not like some magical place. It's the people who are in it. Well, it's the people. There's two things about that. The first thing is, again, and I'm 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 only talking Americans. A lot of Americans are arrogant. They have the mindset if I don't see it, it doesn't exist. If I don't experience it, it doesn't exist. And so it's it's that mindset that only what I see. And even though there are 200 plus other countries in the world, if it's not happening in America or they're not experiencing it, they don't believe it exists. The second thing about it is, this country, if you if you really research the history of American history. When the English people left England and stole this land, their purpose was to show England they could make a country better than England. Unfortunately, they failed. So instead of acknowledging they failed, they decided to lie to people. So they went – so that's why they took – because originally school was um, Catholic school only. There was no other schools in America. You only went to Catholic school. The government took the school system away from the Catholic school and made a public school because their goal was to make Americans stupid. So they changed American history, and they lied and told Americans America is the best country in the world and that there's freedom and liberty and justice for every human being. And the lie has been so long that people believe it that by the time you start to reveal that lie – people have a hard time believing it because they've been told their whole life this is the best country in the world and everyone has equality and everyone has the same opportunities and everyone this and everyone that. And because we worship people, we have a hard time believing a person can lie. If they have a doctor's degree, if they're a pastor, if they're this, if they're a teacher, we have a hard time believing that a person can actually lie. So by the time the truth comes forth, we don't want to believe the truth because we were. It took us so long, you know. We've been believing the lie for so long. It really takes us a long time to believe the truth. And so, even um, when they first announced, I think it was either last year or two years ago, when they first announced that they finally realized that um, what you call it, the um, vaping, is actually worse than regular smoking. A lot of vapors had a hard time believing it because they were yeah. told for so long it's better. And so when you're told a lie and it's conditioning your mind, you really have a hard time holding, grabbing on to the truth because it's not so much the lie you believe, it's who told you to lie. You know, if, you, if you're aware of a liar and they lie to you, you're not shocked because you knew that's who, what they were. But when people who you respect and honor and all of that you find out they lie to you. When people say the truth hurts, I say it's not the truth that hurts. When you come into the truth, what hurts is the knowledge that you've been lied to. Yeah, because that you, most that you times got duped. People who, that you got duped that yes, you believe. And it's, you believe the exactly. lie for so long. 
Yeah. And the person who told you to you, that's what where we where our heart breaks is, Oh my gosh, I had so much respect and I believe them. Yeah. Et cetera. That's why even in marriage when someone finds out they've been cheated on, because you put your all in that person, it's hard for yeah. you to grasp that this person can do that to you. And so right. that's the problem is us having so much faith and trust in worshiping humans. When we realize that all humans can lie, then we're not going to, it's not going to be so hard for us to believe the truth when we hear it. Yeah, you know, I, I love to watch American Greed. And, and, and on that, so many of those people, they swindle their best friend out of their entire life savings. It's just, uh, it's, it's shocking to watch. It's shocking to watch, but you, once again, you you put so much faith in a person. You say, "I've known Tyrone for thirty years. He would never hurt me. He just mm-hmm. took all your money." You don't even realize what just happened, you know. So that is, you know, just be aware, just be aware. But that, that very insightful. Now, why did you, Casey? Why did you decide to take on such weighty topics? Um, I've realized that um, people generally think there's two sides to everything, and sometimes things are like cubes. There's six sides, and people don't really take the chance. Like once they're they're committed on a side, they don't want to hear anything else. So I figured if I wrote books with the sides that they did not get to see or chose not to see, it would open up their eyes and their minds more to realize that some of the things they're doing may be wrong, and it'll humble them enough to make changes in their life or in their family's lives or in their community neighborhood's lives. And so that's why when I write, it's me, even my poem book, Poems from the Other Side, I say that because I'm always, when I see a situation, I make sure I look at every side before I make a judgment. Most people just look at their side that makes them look good, and that's it. They don't want to see the side that makes them look bad or doesn't benefit them. But I'm like, I want to look at every side because when you have a problem, you shouldn't want to blame people for the problem. You should want the problem solved. And the only way to solve the problem is to acknowledge what is the root or the seed that caused the problem. And even if you are the problem or the part of the problem or even if you've caused the problem, it's better that you acknowledge it so the problem can be solved instead of, pretending as if, you know, it's everybody else's fault. And so most of my books, I'm hoping when people read them, it'll open up their mind to see, oh, wow, I do need to make some changes in my life. Mm, you know what, because if we don't do it, uh, then it, it probably won't get done. It's, this is, I mean, it's not a magic wand going up. And we do have to take responsibility for ourselves. Like you said, in the, uh, you hear people say, do you want to be right? Or do you want to do you want to be happy? So you got to be right. sometimes wrong, and you have to change. It's, it's, you can either fight and say you're right, or you can say I'm wrong, and then what do I need to do? Like you said, to fix to fix the problem. Now I love the title of your play, "The Day the Rainbow Broke Up." Can you give us an overview of this play, the day, and how many characters are in this? The day the rainbow broke up. Well, that um, there's seven, um, but you can – well, there's 14 total, but um, you can have as many um, – you can play around with it. So that idea came to me. I was 
um, one of the emails, I have multiple emails because I'm a little OCD. I like to keep my stuff organized. And one of the emails I use when you log out, the first thing you see is the latest trending news. And I think it was 2016, I was logging out and I saw this article. I didn't read the whole article because I just didn't, I didn't want to waste my time, but it just said, you know, a white boy did something to a black boy in school. And I immediately said, humans are just so stupid. And then I said, do they realize how stupid it would be if the colors of the rainbow argued with each other about which color is superior? And I immediately said, that's a play. That's a children's theater play. And I wrote it within two to three days. And then I said to myself, it should also be a book. So it's a children's book as well. Um, So there's 14 because there's seven colors of the rainbow. And then seven, um, there's, what is it? There's insects. There's plants, insects, and animals that come to each part of the rainbow because they argue with one another about which one is better. And when they can't decide which one is better, they decide to break up and make their own rainbow. So as they're out there making their own rainbow, seven different parts of nature comes to see them and say, well, where's the rest of the rainbow? And they're like, oh, we broke up because they didn't see I was better than them, et cetera, et cetera. And whether it's a plant, an insect, or an animal reminds them that, no, neither one of you are better. You're you're all equally, you're unique, but you're still equal, and you can't have a rainbow without all of you. You're all important to the rainbow, and not one more is better than the other. And my purpose, obviously, was that because I personally, I mean, I'm not saying there aren't any, but most races are Christian. And I'm like, how can you believe in God and think there's a problem with diversity? Because when you start from the plants, then you go to the insects, and then you go to the animals, there's nothing but diversity from different shapes, sizes, colors, species, everything. I mean, birds alone, there's some with feathers, some without, some that fly, some that don't, some that are small, some that are big, some that are tall, some that are short. And so it's like if God did all of that, why would you think he would have a problem with humans being exactly the same, diverse? And so I did it for children because if you can raise, teach children, they'll grow up to be better adults. But it's for anyone and everyone. And so that is the story behind the day the rainbow broke up. And, of course, towards the end, they realize their mistakes and they get back together. And one of the things – I actually did a play reading, and I recorded it for Zoom, and it's on YouTube um, under my CSB television YouTube channel. So if anyone's listening want to watch it, you can watch it. Um, but one of the things I do want to mention about the rainbow, um, for those who do believe in God, you know that the rainbow was shown to Noah after the flood. And the purpose of the rainbow was to, was a promise to Noah and all of us that no matter how much we sin, that God will never destroy the earth with rain again, specifically. And that's what he said. That's what the rainbow is for. So when it's really bad storm and you feel like the world is about to end, the, when the rainbow comes out afterwards, that's not only God saying, I'm not going to destroy you, but it's also him reminding you, us that there is, there is something we've done that has disappointed him, but the rainbow is to remind us that he's not going to kill us with the rain. And so the rainbow is hit our um, reminder that he won't kill us, but we know and um, scientists have proven it that prior to Noah, everyone was dark-skinned, and after the flood, that's when the skin colors change, and you have to ask why, because God looks down. So we are his rainbow. So we 
the different shades that come together, we are his reminder that no matter how much we sin, he cannot make it rain to the point to where he destroys the earth. And so that's why there's so many different shades. But in the same breath, the Bible says that he made us with dirt. And there's black dirt, there's brown dirt, there's red dirt, there's yellow dirt, there's, you know, pink and white dirt. And so that's another reason why we all come in different shades. And so there really is nothing wrong with different skin colors. And you, there's nothing wrong with it. And there's nothing wrong if you don't have it. The same thing, there's nothing wrong with a crow being black. There's nothing wrong with a dove being white. It's just diversity. That's the way he likes it. And I hope that when people see the play or read the book, they realize the um, ignorance, for lack of a better word, because um, I don't want to say stupid or stupidity. But at the end of the day, if you have a problem with someone's skin color, that's just stupid because there's no reason to have a problem. We're diverse just as much as the plants, insects, and animals are, and there's nothing wrong with it. Thank and thank you for sharing that. I have to ask you next. So you do so. You've done so. Written poems. You started out with music. You know. You said your dad owned a, owned a music store when you were a kid, and y'all would listen to music. And your parents were in, into music. But so from music to plays to novels to poems, when you wrote uh, the day the rainbow broke up, would you say is is writing a play easier than writing a novel? Or is a novel more challenging, and and why would you say that? A play is easier for me um, because I don't have to give so much detail. Because um, um, with the play, a director and the actors, you know, can really. But with a book, you have to describe things. Um, you know, you have to give details of what the person is doing, what they're wearing, where they're going, you know, if it's raining, you know, there's just a lot more detail when writing a book or a novel or a short story than there is writing a play. Ah, okay. Have you ever brought, whether it's uh, uh, The Day the Rainbow Broke Up or any other play you've written, have you ever brought a play to this live stage? And if you haven't, you you majored in theater and then you you changed your major, but if not, what do you think it would be like the experience of bringing one of your your books or one of your plays actually to the live stage? Um, I haven't done it personally, but um, the day the rainbow broke up was produced twice in um, Maplewood, New Jersey, by the Strollers Theater Company. Um, but myself, um. Well, I've done – I've produced one of my um, – uh, I used to um, – it's called Crazy Fun. It's a live sketch. It's kind of like a living color, but it's, fam- it's uh, more so um, family-oriented. I have done – brought that to stage, um, and I've done um, different things like directing and producing um, theater in college. Um, it's it's – I mean, I've, it's fun, but it's not necessarily something I care to do. I'll be honest. Um, I like to see my stuff on stage, but I don't personally care to be the one to produce it. Can you so so, so that I saw, I recently saw a movie with Robert De Niro, and I think he was the producer of a movie, and I, it, I felt like he was an adult babysitter with the the actors <laughs> and their personalities and temperaments. I thought that was more of a director's role. What does a director do versus a producer. You said you've done both 
I thought the director is the one who said, "Stay, stand here, move there, say this." Yes. And then the producer. It depends. The uh, producer, um, there are basically uh, a thousand different things a producer can do, but a producer can, the one thing a producer has to do is provide the money. All the other things a producer can either choose to do or not do. So they can choose to be in part, they can just provide the money and that's it. That's, they're done. Their job is done. Or they can be in, um, help out with costumes, uh, make final decisions with costumes, make final decisions with the script. Or they could um, be the ones who um, bring the team together as far as lighting, sound, actors, um, publicity. They can be they can um, help with publicity and marketing and advertising. Like everything that every that everything that you need, a producer can be a part of, or they don't have to. But the one thing a producer has to do is provide the money so that it can get done. But all the other things is really up to the producer themselves whether or not they want to actually take part in that production. It's really up to the producer. So it really depends. Each producer, does you every producer, when you ask what did you do to this project, every story is going to be different because some producers get all the way involved, some are half involved, and some are not involved at all. They just give the money and walk away. But they own that move. So if you you hear about a producer for a major motion picture, she or he they own they own that. They could say they hire the the director or uh, they can. Uh, they, they, they determine they, who's the, yeah. I want Denzel Washington in this movie. I want yes. They they yes. make those calls if they want to. If they want to, yes. Um, nowadays, I think they're more involved than they used to be. Back in the days, they would just provide the money and walk away because if it was a good project, they knew once the project was out there, they'd be making lots of money back. But some, like, are picky, so and because it's their money, they feel like, well, this is who I want specifically or this is what I want specifically. But as a producer, you have the right to decide whether you're going to be involved or not. And the thing is, you can also change your mind. So if you say I'm not going to be involved and then halfway through you, you can let them know, I changed my mind, I'm going to be involved. Because it's they basically, you're without your money, they can't do anything. So you, they have no choice but to allow you to be involved if you choose to. Could you see yourself now with Crazy Fun, it's a comedy, um, and, you, and you said you like comedy. Could you see yourself going, you, at first you said, you know, you started in theater and then you said, nah, I'm not signing away my name. Could you see yourself in, inching back? Toward theater, and if you and if and if you did, and you you uh, produced your works independently, then you wouldn't have to sign a contract. If you if you put it out on your own, could you see yourself going back down that path, uh, um, so that you bring your work more to either live theater or uh, even if it was a small picture, a motion picture that would only air at a, a few theaters? Could you? Is there any interest in that, or no? The um, interest is there. I had, I mean, prior to the pandemic, I had thoughts of doing theater as a director producer. I didn't have the resources at the time, um, but film, yes, I do plan. I'm um, actually working on a short film at the moment via, um, you know, remote. Um, it's, it's all of the actors are um, filming from home of their home, um, but yes. Independently, that's where I'm at. 
Um, I'm definitely, um, I just, I prefer being independent. Um, I'm just going to admit it. I'm a bit on the stubborn side of things. I'm the type of person where, you know, tomorrow, today I will jump off the plane with you, but tomorrow, if I don't feel like it, get out of my face. And <laughs> some people might say, well, yesterday you were with it. And it's like, well, that was yesterday. Today is a different day. I don't feel like it. And so that's the type of person I am. And I know once you sign those contracts, you can't be okay with it today and not okay with it tomorrow. You have to be okay with it at all times. But I'm, I'm, I don't want to put myself in the predicament where I'm going to get sued because if I don't want to do something, it's not being done, period. And so, yes, I am going to stay independent because I don't want to cause a problem to anyone. I don't want to be that person. Well, how do how do you see, Casey, as we come down to like the last seven minutes of the show today, how do you see the pandemic changing theater? I know Broadway canceled their whole season this year. How do you see the pandemic uh, impacting the theater? And even more importantly, that the motion pictures that cost tens of millions of dollars to produce, uh, how do you see that impacting I know Netflix is having a heyday, but how do you see it impacting uh, live theater and the major motion picture industry going forward? I really don't know because I've realized that this pandemic is supposed to force people to change, but it's not. And people don't, they don't, I mean, you're supposed to always be wanting to change and do something differently, but people, when people get comfortable in a certain way, they don't want to change. And I don't think that either theater or Hollywood wants to make changes that they need to make. And so I don't know that. In a sense, I think theater and, you know, Hollywood is closed until it's completely over. The pandemic is, like, completely over. I personally don't think they're going to make any changes. I think they're just going to go back to the way things were. And I I myself is the reason why I want to be independent is because I see the changes that need to take place. And I want to do them. But unfortunately, we just live in a society where people want to stay the same. They do not want to change. And it's sad because people don't understand if you want change in your life, you have to change. Like you can't not, you know, expect someone else to change. And, I mean, I don't see theater opening back up probably to 2022. um, Wow. I don't think any of because I don't think any of them want to come up with new ideas to change. They want they don't want to change. Um, I just don't see them wanting to change. They don't want to flow with what's going on. They rather just wait till it's over and go back to what they were already doing. And it's sad because we, as artists, we forget the original purpose of art was to send a message. But not just in theater and film, but in music in books, in art itself, fine art, um, visual art, people have got um, lost in the awards and the, you know, the accolades and the fame and the, oh, you did such a beautiful job, and they've lost the message that art is supposed to bring. And the messengers became the star and when the message is supposed to be the star. And so because they care more about, you know, the money that, the theater brings and the money you get and the fame and the trophies, in their mind, they can't change because they don't see how they can continue to do it and still have the award shows and still have this and still have that. 
But I truly believe if they would let the message of their art be the star, they can see what they can do to open up back the theaters and open, you know, back whatever the case may be. But unfortunately, people don't want to change. And so I personally, I thought, I really thought in the very beginning, you know, March, when we first got shut down in March here in New Jersey, I honestly thought it was going to make people change, it was going to make them rethink things, it was going to make them, you know, you know, lose that weight or start that business or start, you know, budgeting better or being nicer and more positive and not screaming and hollering at each other, which at strangers on social media, I really thought it was going to cause people to change. And unfortunately, it's not. It's making people more angry and more, you know, even now the the numbers are going back up because when they opened everything back up, they didn't require people to wear masks outside. Because I guess people just assume that, oh, you can't catch the virus when you're outside for whatever reason. And even in that, people don't want to people don't want to change. Like they don't want to go outside with masks on. That's not what they're used to. So they don't want to do that. And it's just, it's frustrating because people care more so much about their comfort than what needs, you know, what they need. And right Mm -hmm. now what we need are people to not just change what you're doing, change your mindset, change the way you think, change the way you, you thought life was supposed to be just change. And it's, I just don't understand why, People for two terms voted for change, but yet nobody wants to change. And it's like, well, how can it's like how can you vote for something you don't want to do? That doesn't make well, that, any sense. You know, psycho- psychologists have long proven that even in our individual lives, that don't have maybe as much impact on other people. We 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 struggle. We just and, and why exactly? Psychologists have studied it. I forget what the reason is behind it. We it changes like the last thing, the last thing we want to do as humans. It's the, it's the last thing we want to do. But animals are also they they get in their routines as well. I don't know what the cause of it is, but as we come down to the last few minutes of the show, there's something for our listeners to chew on. Can you share three to four steps, Casey? You've written so many books. Uh, three to four steps that you found effective at getting the word out about your plays, your stories, and your books. Three to four steps. Um, well, obvious. The first is uh, social media. Um, just being consistent. I actually took a, a, a webinar learning the difference between being persistent and consistent. Um, is that when you are trying to market yourself. Um, I'm just repeating what the, her name is, um, Ashley Ann, but she calls herself King Ashley Ann. She said, don't talk about bananas and pineapples and then sell them a ham sandwich because they're going to want the bananas and pineapples you were talking about. And lots of times when we're marketing on social media, we're talking about 500 things, and then we're trying to sell one the one thing that we, we really didn't talk about. And so being consistent means consistently talking about that one thing you're you're trying to sell and then sell it. Don't talk about 20 other things. So being consistent with – I have um, pages where I'm just talking about my books. Um, Another thing is um, find – searching online. It's it's, it's a lot of hard work, but searching online your your, um, platforms where your audience is. So if you write books, search for platforms um, of like Goodreads or BookBub 
or um, a place like you where your your audience is because you don't want to sell a book to people who don't read or uh, a ham sandwich to people who are vegan. You know, you want to make sure that your wherever you're searching to to market, your audience is there specifically. Um, another thing I've done as far as marketing my books is um, selling my bidding my books on eBay. I don't make money off of it, but my goal is to find readers, not necessarily money, because you want to find an audience. And again, um, and anything you do, um, whatever you're you're getting the word out, make sure your message is the the key. Like you don't want to say, "Well, I want to be a best-selling author. I want to, you know, make a lot of money. I want to live in a mansion." No, the the key is what is your message you're trying to get across in whatever you're doing. And let that be your driving force, because if your message is the driving force, then you're not concerned about so much, you know, making money. You'll give a book for free because you realize this person needs the message that I'm trying to give. And so I would ask the, the number one thing is just let your message be the star of everything you do, not you. Don't ah, you, very you, interesting. you know. Yeah, you know what, Casey, I I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, uh, that's just why did you write the story? Why did you even write the book? Why did you write the play? Keep that front and center. What's the message in the book? Just keep t- sharing that message. The message uh, because that's what they're going to get when they get your product. They're not buying you. So um, that's a good, a very good reminder. And thank you for sharing that. I so enjoyed having. Casey Bell here with us on Off the Shelf today. We have run out of time. I encourage you to visit Casey Bell and some of the books. He's written over 22 books, American History, Book of Art, Poems from the Other Side, To College or Not to College, Family Full of Strangers, You Are Beautiful, Buried Lies Surface, and The Wishing Bottle. Uh, uh, the uh, we, we discussed the... Um, the the broken rainbow, the children's play that he's written. He just has written so much material. I encourage you to visit Casey Bell online at ArthurCaseyBell.com, and that's A U T H O R C A S E Y B E L L dot com. ArthurCaseyBell.com. ArthurCaseyBell.com. Please visit and keep up what he's doing. Keep up. He's working on a play or an, an independent, I don't know if it's live stage or, or, or going to be a, a major motion picture independently produced, but keep up with him, ArthurCaseyBell.com, and you can keep up with what he's doing. Thank you, Casey, for being here with us on Off the Shelf this morning. I thank all of our listeners, our loyal listeners, who've been with us for 16 years and those who it might have be your first time tuning in to Off the Shelf this morning, please come back next Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time where we'll have another awesome guest for you. And I always tell you this. Remember, you are amazing. You are you are just amazing, fascinating, and awesome. Please go out and create a fabulous day for yourself today. Casey, I'll shoot you an email when the show finishes streaming. Thank you again. Bye for now. Thanks.